Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. To claim your CME CE credits today, you will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity if you are in the room. If you are viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Supriya Manapali, who is our Infectious Disease Medical Director. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> no, I, I, I was trying not to block you as you were coming down. Um, thank you, everyone, for attending this CAUTI Prevention CME, uh, a multidisciplinary approach. Um, before we get started, I really want to thank the speakers, um, Heather Standard, Jennifer London, um, Sandy Bozart, Dr. Jamie Morales, Dr. Konstantin Zublowski, Dr. Martin Austin, Dr. Michael Cormican, who have agreed to be part of uh, the CME event and really put the perspective from their specific areas because when it comes to preventing healthcare-associated infections, this collaborative approach is extremely important to achieve the optical, optimal outcomes. I'm just going to get it started with the definition of what a catheter-associated UTI means, and then I'll pass on to our nursing leaders, Heather Standard and Jennifer London. And these are not clinical definitions. These are definitions from CDC. And these are the definitions that we use, um, or our infection prevention um, team uses when we identify a catheter-associated UTI and report it to the CDC and HSN network. So per CDC, and this is an epidemiological definition, a catheter-associated UTI is when a UTI occurs in a patient where there is an indwelling catheter in place for more than two calendar days. And when I say two calendar days, 11.59 on day one is one day. So it's not the hours, it's not 24 hours. It's two calendar days on the date of the event with the day of device placement being day one. And the indwelling catheter is in place on the day of the event or the day before. And patient had at least one of the following signs or symptoms. Fever, suprapubic tenderness, severe pain or tenderness, urinary urgency, frequency, or dysuria. And patient has a urine culture with no more than two species of organisms identified. At least one of them is a bacterium of more than 10 or 5 colony units uh, per ml. So indwelling catheter, more than two calendar days, symptoms, only one of them is enough, and a positive culture meets the criteria for a catheter-associated UTI, which has to be reported to the CDC and HSN. It doesn't matter if we find out the fever is from something else, a pneumonia or a DVT or some other drug fever. Once we have done the urine culture, patient has a catheter, and uh, patient had the fever, meets the criteria. Even if the provider decides, I'm not going to treat it with antibiotics, it does not matter. It still meets the definition and has to be reported to the CDC and HSN. And as we all know, once we see the positive culture, there's always the temptation to treat. So that leads to unnecessary antibiotic use when not needed, and um, the risk that comes with the development of drug resistance seated. 
Now I'm going to pass it on to Heather Standard and Jennifer London, our nursing leaders and champions for cardiac prevention. So good afternoon, everyone. I am so excited to be here. And Jennifer and I are going to be presenting on some of the nursing strategies that we have been used, that we've been implementing and working on for CAUTI reduction um, for the system. Jennifer and I co-lead our nurse quality work group um, related to CAUTI reduction. We've already talked about this. So the objectives of our presentation are pretty simple. We're going to define for you what a catheter-associated urinary tract infection is, commonly referred to as a CAUTI. We're going to talk about the impact of CAUTIs to the healthcare organization and how reducing our CAUTIs also aligns with our um, clinical excellence nursing strategic initiative number four. We're going to talk about the benefits of collaboration with nursing and physician partnership so that we can better determine criteria for catheter insertion and we can get those catheters out as quickly as possible. And then we're going to review for y'all the evidence-based bundle elements that we have in place here at the health system and we have had in place here for quite a long while um, and alternatives that we can use as opposed to inserting that Foley. So those are our objectives. So what is a CAUTI? We all know, well, maybe we don't know. CAUTI is a urinary tract infection that's involved, involving a Foley. So a urinary tract infection is an infection involving any part of the urinary system. It can include urethra, the bladder, ureters, and the kidney. UTIs are the most common type of healthcare-associated infection reported to the National Healthcare Safety Network. And among UTIs acquired in the hospital, approximately 75% of those are associated with a urinary catheter which is a tube that we insert into the bladder through the urethra to drain urine. So we cannot have a cauti if we do not have a Foley. I think that's just very important to, to draw those, um, those lines. The impact to the health system is huge, which is the reason that cauti reduction is one of our system strategic initiatives this year. It increases patient discomfort, it increases mortality. It increases our use of antibiotics, which we all know we don't want to use antibiotics unless we need to, so that impacts our antimicrobial resistance. It increases our length of stay. Beds have not been easy to come by here lately, so increasing length of stay for something that we caused that we could have prevented is not what we want to do. But it also increases the cost to the organization. The average cost of a CAUTI is $13,793 per event. I'm now going to turn the presentation over to Jennifer London, my fearless um, chair of our nurse quality work group, and she's going to review with you our nursing and phys physician um, partnership as well as our CAUTI bundle. All right, everybody. My name is Jennifer. Like she said, I am also the nurse manager and educator for inpatient rehab in addition to working on the quality team. I'm here today to share a few actionable items with you from our CAUTI work group. 
called a reduction bundle elements and nursing and physician provider partnerships. And this leads me to our discussion on the partnerships with our physicians. Collaboration for better determination of a need for insertion of that indwelling catheter. Does that patient truly need the, meet the criteria, need that catheter? Can alternatives be used? Partnership for earlier catheter removal, catheter criteria discussed with nursing provider during the rounding. Nursing to document criteria of necessity or remove per policy. And then we um, recently implemented a best practice advisory in EPIC for earlier removal if the patient no longer meets that criteria. That was a big hurdle for our group and uh, hope it's working out for everyone. We're also working on nursing strategic initiative number four. That's the, card, the development of the CAUDI nursing quality work group. And that leads us to uh, nursing and physician leaders collaborating with frontline staff. I would like to extend a special shout out to Dr. Manapali, Dr. Dudas, and Dr. Michael Cormican for their support and leadership as our work group begins several new CAUDI initiatives on a unit near you. Thank you. Now let's see if I can do the clicker. As we begin talking about CAUDI reduction bundle, please note the items in red are elements identified by our work group as areas of opportunity for improvement or areas that are not being followed consistently. So the first one, use indwelling urethral catheters only when necessary and avoid use for the management of urinary incontinence. Assess the need for the indwelling urinary catheter each shift with prompt discontinuation of the catheter when no longer required area of opportunity. Consider lower risk alternatives to catheterization when possible. Intermittent catheterization and the external um, urinary catheters, another area of opportunity. Intermittent catheterization is preferable to indwelling urethral or suprapubic catheters in patients with bladder emptying dysfunction. We want you to use aseptic technique and sterile equipment when inserting the catheter. Maintain the indwelling urethral catheter system as a closed system and use standard precautions and hand hygiene before and after manipulation of the catheter and the drainage system. Continuing on, see how busy nursing is? <laughs> many, many things to charnel. Avoid bladder irrigation unless obstructed. Maintain the drainage bag in a dependent position to maintain flow. And we all know we've seen those uh, catheter bags are on top of the stretchers going to different departments in the hospital. So just remember to hang it below. Uh, keep the urinary collection bag below the level of the bladder off the floor to prevent bacteria from colonizing the drainage bag outlet port. Keep the catheter bag collecting tube free from kinking and dependent loops. Empty collecting bag regularly using a separate clean container for each patient. Ensure drainage spigot does not contact non-sterile container. And I'll stop here because that's a bunch of stuff. So I don't know if you knew there was a report in EPIC. The nurse managers can pull that report and we can tell, we can drill it down to the specific person who has not done catheter care, who has not done all of these elements. So eventually it be, can become a disciplinary action possibly, or we can drill it down to if there's a specific problem with an employee where we need to go back and do education. So um, the catheter is to be secured using a facility approved device to the patient's leg to avoid tension on the catheter. 
another point, just because I work rehab, that securement device should not be placed on your affected leg or if they have um, a residual limb, place it on the, the good leg. Uh, perform perineal hygiene and catheter care once per shift in PRN with facility approved product. In the case of Northeast Georgia Medical Center, we use MCARE wipes. And that's another area. That's one that we miss an awful lot with the techs not doing their, their Foley care. If a urine sample is required, aspirate with a sterile syringe from the disinfected sampling port to avoid manipulation and disruption of the catheter collection system. We're working on a new um, device, and I think Dr. Morell may talk about that that's coming from the lab. I'm not certain, but I think he will. Replace the catheter if breaks in a septic technique, disconnection, or leakage occur. And another biggie, change the catheter or drainage system prior to obtaining your analysis and reflux culture. If the catheter has been in greater than um, five days and is still necessary, unless placed by a physician, advanced practice provider, or recent urological surgery, bladder injury, or pelvic surgery. Again, that's an area of opportunity. We're seeing more and more catheter specimens that are being obtained from catheters greater in greater than five days. Change the catheter and drainage system when admitting a patient with an existing indwelling catheter that was inserted outside of an NGMC acute care hospital. That's all of our locations like Lumpkin, Barrow, Brazelton, and Gainesville. Unless it was placed by a physician, APP, due to recent urological surgery, bladder injury, or pelvic surgery. I think that's all. And I've rattled enough. Now it's my turn to introduce you to Dr. Morell. He is the medical director from Micro. Hello. Um, first of all, I would like to thank Dr. Manapali for inviting the labs to take part on this activity, um, especially since in the lab we feel like people don't know pretty much what uh, entails to work in the lab. I compare it as air. We never know it's missing until we're gasping for air. Um, let's see. It is an integral part in every aspect of healthcare. It's involving the lab. So from our point of view, a CAUTI, this is the first time I pronounce it in the public, um, we don't know what it's a CAUTI in the, in the sense that you guys see it. What we see, it's a sample. Um, and I'm gonna go over a little bit what we do with those samples. But these are my objectives. As long as we can uh, define the role of the lab in the diagnostic diagnosis and management of CAUTI, um, it, it would be great. And above all, give an understanding of what the lab, especially in this case, the microbiology team does with those urines. How do we report it? Um, how it gets to you? And always remember that all these criterias are, can be tweaked depending on the situations in the hospital. The Most of the uh, algorithms we follow come from the CDC and other institutions, but you, the clinical staff, nursing, doctors, have an active role in making sure that the lab works for you. 
Um, and the more you communicate with the lab, the better it's gonna be for our patients. So, as I said before, the lab doesn't know what is a CAUTI patient. We don't call it CAUTI as you've seen it before. You guys decide what is a catheter-associated UTI. So we treat all our samples equally. Um, we don't, there, there's no special urine that we get in order to, get, to give you the information so you get a, a diagnosis of a CAUTI. However, we encourage one specific type of order, which is urinalysis with culture. When you go to EPIC, pick that option because it allows us to assess the adequacy of that sample. If you order, which is also in the, in the order set, urine culture, you may get a lot of contaminations. We humans are filled with bacteria, we all know it. There's no way you can not be contaminated. So there has been a lot of guidelines for every part of the body, and I wish we can continue this series uh, this is urine today, maybe pulmonary, uh, et cetera, that we can do these so we can understand how to take these samples to guarantee a better report that is more valid. Um, so we're definitely willing to work with the hospital staff to bring down the CAUTI rates and make it faster also because if the sample is not collected correctly, you're gonna get a, a negative uh, or insufficient uh, report. So here are the criteria as long as you choose the urinalysis with reflex culture. So if a urine is positive for leukocytes or nitrates and has above a microscopic examination uh, 10 white blood cells and more or equal to one bacteria per high power field and, and this is really important, that's why I highlighted it in red, less than 25 epithelial cells. Epithelial cells everywhere tell you that it is, there's a high risk of contamination. Because obviously, uh, the way that urine flows in the body passes through uh, squamous mucosa. This is a higher problem in women uh, because of the anatomy of the genital area. So if the sample Conform, um, conforms to these criteria, it goes into a culture because that's what you guys want. You want a culture on that sample. However, if we don't see leukocytes, we don't see bacteria, taking it into a culture is just gonna be, we would call it like a misappropriation of, of resources because it is not gonna have an infection, okay? So, Samples with more, as I said before, epithelial cells reflect a poorly collected sample. And we, we have instances where uh, staff gets angry. Oh, I sent you a sample and we don't have a, a good, you, you didn't give me a, a result. This is usually the reason. Uh, it's not uh, a good sample. We still can do the culture, but with a caveat that it may not reflect um, the infection that you're looking for. So again, from the lab point of view, the collection is paramount. And this is where we would like to address from our point of view, the issue of CAUTIs, or urine cultures in general. Um, so, 
It is advice on each patient. Doesn't matter if the patient has a PhD at giving urines. Uh, educate them on how to take the urine, okay? Oh, we know you, Mr. Thomas. You are great at doing yours. Explain it each time because one day you'll forget. We get up to 50% urine samples that are not adequate. So we really need to work on collection. Um, it was mentioned before that I would talk about the catheter. I did not include uh, images on, on that point, but the same point stands. You have to follow a sterile procedure to collect uh, the urine out of a catheter. I got the, the usual uh, photos. Here, don't get panic. Uh, first of all, do I have an arrow? Yes. Uh, clean the area. Again, for women, this is much more problematic than for men. We see that even in, in urinary cytologies. The, the urines look like pap smears because we want urine, not epithelial cells or contaminants. So ask your patients for clean, pee a little bit in the toilet, away from the container. Be careful with the fingers. One touch of the finger inside of the, the urine is gonna give you a false positive or it's gonna cause issues. Um, a little bit of a funny story, I don't wanna take too long. When I was a resident, I thought to myself, oh my God, I'm so clean. Uh, I took a swab and I touched my nose, just touch it, poop, and played it on a, on a blood agar. I'm like, you'll see, there's not gonna be a single bacteria there tomorrow. You don't wanna see that. <laughs> so we, even the slightest mistake can contaminate a sample. So then we know, meet stream, go ahead and uh, put it in the container, seal it, and send it to the lab with a proper order. The same with men, clean the area, pee outside, this is reversed, pee outside, and then into the, the cup, okay? So once you get our, uh, the correct sample, everything is fine, we proceed to run the culture. And we have three scenarios. The first one is your culture is positive, in this case E. coli, you're gonna get a report of the colony forming units and the susceptibility. I found this is very good that we do in our hospital, I don't know if other hospitals do it, but they put here this sign of money. This is really good for resource management. So pick the, the antibiotic that is susceptible and it's the cheapest, okay? So here we have a negative culture. Uh, and you can see a comment here. It says multiple bacteria morph, morph types present possible contamination. We did not want to do the, the full on workup because the urine is contaminated. And you can see the colony forming units is 2,000 compared to a positive one, which is 100,000. And here's the negative. This is a properly collected urine, um, but there was no growth. This is what we wanna see. We don't want uh, catheter-associated UTIs. So, and that's about it. If you guys have any questions, feel free. If not, I'm gonna leave you with Dr. Z. Um, please welcome him.
Let's see. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. I'll uh, I'll give you. I, I can't compete with ID docs and infection preventionists, so I'll give you a short, kind of short and sweet ICU perspective on the candidates. That's how you solve the county. No can. <laughs> problem solved. Uh, <laughs> you just. No, I, but if you think about it, that's the way to do it. No catheter, no catheter-related infection. Unfortunately, we, you know, as you know, we still have those infections because this is easier said than done. And the reason it is difficult to manage because it's a culture issue. And unfortunately, medicine is very culture-driven thing, not in this particular facility in general as a field. And the culture is very hard to change. And we believe things we believe in, and some people believe in things that they've learned 50 years ago when they did their graduate medical education. And that's the way they still practice. Similarly true for nursing, for any medical professionals. So what we need to do is change the culture, and changing the culture, you only change the culture by learning on your own mistakes and looking back in the history. Um, things just don't happen by themselves. You need to consciously put some effort into making, making changes. Um, so the old belief was, or the, the traditional belief was, while you know, in critical people require critical intervention. So if somebody is in intensive care unit, you have to do everything. Otherwise, you're not providing good care. And I bet you 99% of the people in this audience or in the, even practicing nurses and physicians in ICU, that's what they believe. You go to ICU so we can put things in you, you know, drill holes, put catheters, you know, start things. Um, and that's how we used to think. Well, maybe we should change what our thinking is. And sick patient does not always require um, very aggressive treatment. Remember the, you know, the first premise of medicine, do no harm. If we look back, um, we'll learn that most of the stuff that happens to people in ICU is what we are doing to them. It's not necessarily the result of their disease, it's the result of us trying to get everything normal. Um, I think this is a very good approach. And we have to learn to do that. Just stand back and not do things because many times we, I think, treat ourselves, not treat our patients. Because how can you stand there and, and have pH less than 7.4? No, God forbid your sad drop to below 92. We have to do something about it. Well, not necessarily. If you look, and, and, and again, I am just briefly going to review all our previous mistakes when we thought, you know, let's do more. You know, when it comes to mechanical ventilation, all those start, and, and by the way, those studies are all randomized control, most of them are randomized control studies or meta-analysis, meta which are very, very trustworthy. So we tried giving higher tidal volumes, higher peeps, Higher FI2, high frequency, any of that help? No, actually people die 
more frequently when we try to do more of that. Fluid management, you know, let's flood somebody with fluid. They're hypertensive, they're dry. You know, let's give them liters and liters and liters. What happened? Increased band days, increased ICU stay, and people die more. Transfusions, we used to try, well, listen, less than 14, they like, you know, they have, uh, um, they're anemic. We can't, we, you know, this is not normal. Let's give them blood. What happened? Well, we run out of blood and, and people die. Goals, goals in sepsis. Let's, let's, you know, the higher the better. Let's put them on three pressors. And, you know, the, the higher the pressure, the happier the kidneys are. No, map of 60 to 65, that's what works. And if you try to go up, people die. Um, corticosteroids, the same thing for sepsis. Um, antibiotic therapy, again, longer, <laughs> so what we used to think, longer the better. Not true. Um, dialysis and, and CRT, high volume versus no volume. Again, no benefit. Sedation. Again, if you come through our ICUs, it's getting better now, but I still see people, you know, on 50 of propofol, 10 of Versat, 200 of fentanyl, and when I ask the nurse why, they say, well, patient moved. <laughs> Multiple studies, that's what they demonstrate. You try to do more, it adversely affects the outcome. Calories, in, you know, God forbid somebody doesn't is not getting fat for a day in ICU. Again, data, if you look at the data, if you look at the history, that's what you base your practice on, not, not some, some uh, you know, fairy tales. This is the data. Glycemic control, we used to, you know, before the studies, you know, we used to think the better should, you know, God forbid somebody is hyperglycemic in ICU. Now we're on, on short of cardiac patients. We're saying less than 180, good enough, because hypoglycemia hurts, not hyperglycemia, short term. So all this just to, to again, exemplify the fact that we have to rethink what our practices are, and we have to question it on a daily basis. And only then we come up with a practice that is safe and effective. Um, it, it again, you know, same things about, you know, using uh, uh, swans and other things. So, you know, if less is more, then you can imagine how more more is. Uh, um, any questions? Thank you. I'll test on Dr. Austin. Thank you all for being here. Make sure I go in the right direction, the wrong direction. All right, so I'm going to talk about Caudis from the hospitalist perspective. I think Caudis are Caudis, so a lot of this um, probably has already been covered. Um, a lot of what I'm going to talk about isn't necessarily research-based, but based on observations. And I, I went around asking people and also looking on the Internet for memes. So. There are legitimate reasons for Foley catheters, and they're listed here. I'm not going to go over all of them. Um, uh, 
I think the thing we've seen the most is acute urinary retention or bladder outlet obstruction. I did put critically ill patients next to accurate measurements of urinary output. I don't know if it's the practice here. I had come here only recently, but people, doctors asking for strict INO was, was a big thing where I came from, and they thought that meant having a, a Foley in a patient who was outside of the ICU, but we, it really isn't um, most of the time necessary, and if at all possible, we should find another way to measure urine volume. And I won't go over the other ones. I'm sure you're all uh, familiar with uh, people have unstable fractures or healing wounds. Um, just because these are legitimate reasons for a Foley catheter doesn't mean a Foley catheter has to go in, and some of these are modifiable, and I'm going to go over that. Um, so my first case, and I hope you've grown it, the name is reattention, and I apologize because I had a uh, I'm watching a medical podcast where every name is a horrible uh, pun on the patient's disease. So this is a 75-year-old female with a history of early dementia, post-op day three, following laparoscopic right hemicolectomy. She's taking Norco PRN Benadryl for itching because of the Norco, Temazepam for sleep because the itching is keeping her awake, and Procardia XL for hypertension. She didn't want to be a bother to anybody. She remained in bed most of her hospital stay. She's eating very little, and she has Ringer's lactate running. That night, she becomes confused and agitated, so they gave her some Haldol and a small dose of Ativan. They say she's got lower abdominal pain, so she rushed her off to the CT scan, which reveals bladder fullness. Um, and then the doc comes, of course, after the CT scan and examines her and says, yeah, her bladder's a basketball. So they put in a Foley catheter, and antibiotics are started stat after 900 mLs of urine are obtained. So we look at this person, and we say, wow, she's got urinary retention. Maybe she gets straight cath a few times. But... I'd like to start thinking about what can we do for this patient to address the urinary retention. So lots of drugs. So the drugs fall into several classes, some of which we think of, some of which we don't. Anticholinergics, um, which would be like the Elevil, the Haldol, the Benadryl, um, opiates, scopolamine, sympathomimetics, so uh, patients who come in on meth can have this, um, and um, also muscle relaxants, including several um, blood pressure medicines like hydralazine and ifedipine, but also benzodiazepines can cause um, the laxity of the bladder muscles, uh, baclofen, uh, flexoril. So agitation, bladder distension causes agitation a lot of times. The bacteria is much less likely to cause, and um, I actually had a, saw a board question um, where Urinary retention is very rarely, especially in women, caused by a urinary tract infection. So um, it's not a reason to think a patient has a urinary tract infection. The only exception is somebody has um, very bad um, uh, prostatitis. Um, the other things going on, IV fluids, this is one of my pet peeves. Why do people need to have salt water dripping in their veins 24 hours a day? Um, these are some memes I found, so other people agree with me. I don't think I've ever gone into a room where the IV wasn't beeping and the poor lady has to pee and her IV's beeping all night and the nurse has to go in. And so it makes extra work for our staff and it drives the patients crazy and it can increase the likelihood that the patient has some urinary issues. Um, the use of a catheter itself, both by detraining the bladder and by um, possibly causing some uh, constriction of the urethra, damage to the urethra, can also add to the likelihood of retention in several studies. Um, so you can have a very unhappy bladder. Of course, this isn't reattention's bladder because there's a prostate gland there. Um, so this is, um, this is uh, kind of highlighting all of the things where we might be able to make a difference. 
like about, I think, six different medications, IV fluids at night. Um, and again, we have examples of muscle relaxants here and um, anticholinergic agents. Um, even the medicines we give her to treat her because she's agitated can increase her risk of retention. Um, and then, of course, we were throwing antibiotics at her when she didn't really have an indication for them. Um, if you culture her, she might turn out to be positive, but it doesn't mean that she really has a urinary tract infection in this case, because um, we do have asymptomatic bacteria as well. Um, I'd also add that the um, lack of getting up can make things worse. It's harder to pee if you're lying down. I have problems, you know, I, I don't, haven't had to do it too often, thank God. But, um, you know, it's hard to generate that intra-abdominal pressure when, if somebody's in bed all the time. So um, here's some simple facts on why we should get rid of uh, Foley's. Um, uh, I was struck by the fact that you can have up to a 7% increased risk of a quadi every day the catheter stays in. So getting them out really helps. And I think the other things have been covered before. Um, other reasons besides infection, Foley catheters cause delirium. Some people call them a, um, a one-point restraint, um, but they actually are associated with causing delirium. Um, so uh, I still remember some poor lady who didn't speak English that I had as a resident who every day we'd find her at the side of the, of, the, of the bed and she was always standing like this because she would get out of bed and try to walk with the Foley catheter in and the balloon you know, was attached to the bed and the balloon would kind of just come, it would come out without the balloon deflating. Um, we've all seen bladder trauma. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I've seen in long term, especially in males, uh, really bad urethral trauma. Um, bladder fistulas, and bladder stone formation. So this is based solely on talking to people. This isn't a scientific study, but these are some reasons why they stay in. It's kind of based on David Letterman's top 10. So number seven, and I did miss number one, so there's really eight. Patient convenience. So sometimes patients refuse to have their Foley's removed. I, I don't know if you, you guys are getting, I try to talk to them a lot, um, but it, it seems to be a little less common now, but here's a lady who's just received Oops, uh, furiosemide. So it's furiously screaming at her kidneys to make lots of urine, and she'd much rather keep her Foley and lie in bed. Uh, number six, keeping skin dry, which is a legitimate reason. Number two is out of place, but um, people have told me that the um, Purex tend to pop off in skinny people, so you can have can be undependable. So sometimes um, trying to keep somebody dry, we get stuck. Uh, number five, strict INO, as we said before. Number four, and I got to say, I think we're facing a staffing crisis um, or staffing shortage. So um, I am always amazed at how pleasant and how effective our staff is given the challenges they get. But, um, and these are just memes from the internet. I mean, we, are, we do have a staffing shortage and the alternatives to Foley's, especially things like trying to get patients up and toileting them and um, in the case of urinary retention, intermittent catheterization is certainly more labor intensive than just keeping a Foley in. And I saw this on, on the internet as a meme. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true with our staff, but I know that you know, it can be an issue where it's convenient for the patient and convenient um, for staff. But I, I, do, I really don't believe that our staff keep, uh, keep Foley's in solely for their own convenience. And I do believe that they are aggressive about taking them out. Um, other reasons why, why you know, having problems with urinary continence is a big issue, um, associated with 40% of falls. So that's a lot of falls in the hospital are associated with getting up to the bathroom. 
Um, I did include this um, thing. We have this new delirium order set that we're trying to get our docs to use that will stop stops those drips of IV fluid at night. So you know when there aren't people around, um, pa patients don't have to run to the bathroom. Number three is going to the ICU. People tell me that sometimes they're being told to um, place a catheter because because the patient's going to the ICU. Um, this is um, one of the long-term care protocols um, for removing catheters. They tell me they get a lot of patients with catheters in. I don't know whether they're getting them from here or other places, but they've said they've been very successful in removing catheters um, at, um, at nursing homes. Um, the mysterious undocumented Foley, uh, some of the docs have told me they're not really sure why the Foley is there, and they're kind of afraid to pull it out because they're not really sure. You know, was there urinary retention? There was a note saying urinary retention someplace else. Um, except for those cases that were described earlier, like prior bladder surgery, I, I think we should try to get those out, especially if we're not 100% sure. There's a vague story of urinary retention earlier in the course of the disease. We can try avoiding trials here. Um, and then number one, I never noticed it. This has happened to me a couple of times. I never noticed you had a Foley and a tel telemetry on. I mean, I've examined you, but it was kind of just part of the background. And this was also, again, from the internet. Um, this is a couple of women who were, um, uh, I guess, had gotten designer uh, bag type thing to um, keep their chronic uh, urinary bags hidden. Um, so here's a case, an 80-year-old pa uh, patient with a hip fracture. She had a Foley catheter in place for seven days. She develops a fever with no associated symptoms at a normal white count 24 hours post-op. The question is, should we culture her up? Should we get a urine culture? And I would propose that the answer is no. For the most part, within 72 hours of surgery, um, the, um, the fevers are usually due if there's no localizing symptoms and the patient's not septic to the surgery itself. And you may end up culturing, um, getting a positive culture, but then you're, you're going to be tagged with the UTI because you have a fever and a positive culture, um, and the fever counts as a symptom. Uh, if it's four days post-op, yeah, then you'd probably want to culture, but you'd probably want to, again, change the urinary catheter prior to culture so you don't culture the biofilm that's on the catheter since it's been more than five total days that the catheter's been in place. Um, again, these are our quadi um, removal and BPA, uh, removal orders in BPA, and the go-live date's incorrect, but um, these are now apparently functioning quite well, so they'll alert you if your patient has had a Foley longer than designated time for that uh, intervention. And it gives um, providers an easy way to order uh, discontinuation orders and urinary retention assessments so that we can look for if the patient develops urinary retention. Um, so I, I think this is, I didn't come up with this. I wish I did because um, there's merchandise. But when you come across a Foley, the question to ask is WTF? which is like, why the Foley? And these are actual examples of merchandise. I actually gave Dr. Monopoly a little mug that has this on. I don't make any money off of this, but you can see there's different designs. There's a little edgier on the right and something else on the left. And uh, this is actually comes from a, uh, an actual program that reduced, um, by, by continually asking why a patient had a Foley in place, they were able to reduce uh, caudies by 80% um, in this uh, Boone Hospital Center in Missouri. So another thing to think about. If there's any questions, I'd be happy to, but that's pretty much all I know, so. <laughs> I'd like to introduce Dr. Michael Cormican, who has a, far, I've seen his presentation, and it's far more sophisticated than mine.
Good afternoon, everybody. Um, Dr. Manapali asked me to speak on the STICU experience. Um, I'll try to keep it brief because my meme game is nowhere near as strong as Dr. Z's. Um, but Dr. Manapali came to us and, and had a, a pilot program for how there are a lot of great ideas that she had um, for reducing caudies, um, particularly in the STICU and, and in ICUs in general. And so we worked together and then worked together with our nursing staff and nursing leadership. Um, I think we've had a lot of really great results and a lot of great numbers. Um, I think really the key is um, one, changing the culture that, that Dr. Zeese talked about and the collaboration between the physicians and the providers and our nursing. Um, there was a lot of misunderstandings, you know, it's changing this, changing that. Well, if we do this, we do that. And so it really required a lot of ongoing communication rather than just here's the algorithm, here's the new way we're doing it, and, and fire and forget. Um, there was a lot of ongoing communication that I think really helped change the culture, hopefully permanently. Um, so part of the intervention, we'll sort of get right into the most what ended up being the most controversial one for, for some reason. Um, we just made it, a, we went back and looked at our, our uh, caudi rate, caudies, and the vast majority of them were placed somewhere else. Um, the STICU gets a lot of patients from the ER, they get a lot of patients from the OR and from the floor. And so we just made this blanket statement that anybody that comes to the STICU with a Foley, they get a new Foley. Um, there was a little bit of pushback from the nurses, but most of the pushback was surprisingly from the ER nurses and the OR nurses. They felt like it was some um, disrespect to their Foley placing skills, and it's really you know, not about that at all. Um, but is there a causative relationship between being placed in the ER and, and not? Hard to say, but the facts are the facts that the vast majority of them were placed somewhere else. Um, the second thing that we did was we, Dr. Manapali worked in, and created an algorithm or got an algorithm um, that really focused on our fever workup um, and just our infectious workup in general. And so I won't go into the details of that, but it essentially forced us to, to do less UAs and less urinary cultures. And, and it also, both of these uh, led us to the other, another great point when Dr. Z said is, is do we really need the Foley? So when they came to the unit, we have to take it out. Every time do we, we evaluate, does this person really need it? Part of the algorithm for a FIFA workup is if they've had it for more than three days, take the Foley out. And then that's another opportunity to say, okay, do we really need this? Can we just get by with a pure rate? Can we get by with a common cath? Do they even need this? Um, and I think consequently that, that has helped to drive our Foley utilization rate down just from employing these two things. They weren't even necessarily meant for that purpose. Um, and then the other, another one is at the end of the ICU, you know, this has almost become a moot point at this point because by the time they've gone through their ICU stay, um, the nurses and, and the rounding team has been so cognizant of pulling it, pulling it, pulling it that, you know, the hard, fast rule that says, you know, a day of, the day before we pull it, really isn't even, uh, hasn't even come into place that much because we've been uh, so proactive the whole time. Um, I think this is where the, the nursing leadership and particularly Joyce Bradford, who has really taken the mantle on this and done a, a fantastic job to monitor all the patients with a Foley and really understand, have the nurse and have the providers explain why does this person have a Foley and they have to have a, a legit concrete reason. Um, how long has it been there? How long? How has the catheter been taken care of? Um, 
and then where the providers come in is is being able being open to hearing some of that and understanding that our practices and what we've always done it may not be the best thing um, and and being willing to say okay i'm not going to send a culture on this i'm not going to send the ua right now we're just going to change the foley and and then and then follow the algorithm um, and then to enforce when the nurse comes and says look they just put this in the or an hour ago do i really need to take the foley out you know the, the providers and the and the leadership just needs to, to stick to the stick to the plan uh, and i think that's helped out a lot um, the other thing that we've done a pretty good job about it and the numbers bear it out is is that we uh, use the pericare wipes um, a lot better uh, to the point where we now have the highest um, utilization rate compliance rate uh, in in all of the system um, and it's we really made these changes so we sort of unofficially made all these changes October 1st with a chance to educate get everybody up to speed and then really started collecting data in, in November 1st um, and as you can see our, our compliance rate with the MCARE has gone gone through the roof uh, our uh, I think I don't think the Foley utilization rate has dropped dramatically and consequently our cardio rate has gone down as well um, I'll say that the two caudies that we've had since then I think it was November to December we didn't have any or October to December we didn't have any the two that we had in January were both ones that the someone didn't follow the protocol and they were not clinically significant um, caudies that would not have even counted had we stuck to stuck to the protocol and followed the plan um, but uh, this this is, is some evidence I think even our utilization rate was 32 percent last month um, so it, it continues continues to go down um, so before I hand this over to her I guess just real quick I've been asked to be the glamorous title of Cardi physician champion um, and so we'll be the, the idea is to sort of replicate some of this in other units and um, rather than make a broad let's change the hospital uh, kind of plan we've decided to roll it out unit by unit uh, and address there's going to be different nuances to each unit and it's better to have um, be able to address those individually and so we'll be doing this um, unit by unit and interestingly to, to the point of if you don't have a Foley you can't get a caudi we made the decision to not even use caudi rates as our as our measurable um, most of the time the incidence of it is slow so low that one or two here and there just natural variants will mess up the numbers so Foley utilization is our big measurable uh, the number of UAs that are ordered is a big measurable, um, and then MCARE compliance. Uh, so those would be the things that we actually see if if what we're doing is working with the idea that, um, you know, all those things going better will, will make the caudies come down on their own. So, Dr. Manipali. Just want to say a big thank you to Heather Standard, Jennifer London, Dr. Morell, Dr. Z, Dr. Austin, Dr. Cormican to re for really presenting the perspective from their specific areas. I have learned a lot and this just shows how important it is 
for us to have this collaborative approach. Just a big shout out to the STICU team through the pandemic, through the surges, for sticking with the plan, with the pilot, and showing this affects the nurse educators, the nurse leaders, the bedside nurses, providers, everyone worked together. So it just shows that if we do collaborate and there is that multidisciplinary collaboration, we can make a difference and make our healthcare safer. And as you see here, these are our fully utilization rates. And um, they have, we have seen an increase, um, but uh, what, if you compare this to this, this is what we have seen in the last few years. The number of CARTIs has almost doubled, and if we keep track with this increasing number, by the time we end this fiscal year, we probably will surpass the 70 that we had last year. And I know we can make a difference, and I don't want to go through all the slides I have because um, the panel has covered most of the points, but each day the catheter stays, the bacteria are going to stick to it. And as Dr. Austin said, each day a catheter stays, it increases the risk of having an infection by 7%. And we've covered the criteria, but I think the most important thing is really thinking of the alternatives before we place that Foley and continuing to review that on a daily basis. We actually even added the approved criteria for a 4D catheter placement into an order in EPIC so that at least that will help the providers to think or the nurses to think as they're placing that order if the patient really needs that catheter. And as um, others have covered, we recently also went live with the BPA for daily reminders for the providers because we have not had that. And we did a survey a few years ago where we saw that almost 50 to 70% of the providers did not even know their patient had a Foley. And that was a survey here. And this is the urinary assessment and catheterization protocol. Again, this is a nurse-initiated protocol. We have now built this also into an order. And it's extremely important that we, what we noticed was that most of the Foley's were going in in the night. And the reason always was retention. And uh, with this protocol, the nurse can actually initiate a bladder scan, do in and out catheterization before calling the provider and ask for a Foley order. And again, think of the alternatives. And we're even looking into a new external male catheter at this point, hopefully. And this is the alert that we were talking about that um, is going to fire based on these criteria for the providers on a daily basis. And it doesn't matter how tempting, what the color of the urine is. If the patient does not have symptoms, do not culture it. And in one of the huddles, we noticed that the urine was actually obtained from the back and not the way it was supposed to be. Again, don't collect it from the urine that's been sitting there for hours from the back. And it's important to improve the culture of culturing. Do not send the specimen if it's not needed. Order it as a UV with reflex and change the foliar, or even remove it and watch the patient as Dr. Corbican said for 24 hours and to see if that um, testing is really needed. And we've covered all of this, and we also built the indications for ordering a urine culture into the order as well in EPIC. Again, to give that moment for the providers nursing to think, do we really have to order this test? Um, and this is the algorithm that we tweaked a bit when we did the pilot in STICQ. Basically, if the patient has a catheter, has symptoms, and patient has a Foley catheter, to is the patient stable, not stable, and if the patient is stable, can we actually, if the Foley is not readed, can we remove that? Maybe reassess the patient in 24 hours before just going ahead and sending the catheter. And um, this is the algorithm we used as a base, but we tweaked a few things. Instead of using the five days, 
to change the catheter, we used three days. So we made some changes to this algorithm when we did the pilot in STICQ, and we are really, really pleased to see the results and hope to replicate that in the other units. Cover this. And this is new. We did not have orders in the past until recently to order alternatives to Foley. And our IT uh, colleagues have helped us with that as well. And also with this new order to initiate the urinary retention assessment protocol. And Jennifer and Heather have covered all of this. But, so I'm going to go in the interest of time to the last slide. But the key is, and again, the bundle also has been covered before. The most important thing is um, place Foley's only when needed Make sure there is a physician order. This was something we found out in our huddles. There were many Foley's, but there was no physician order or provider order um, for any of the Foley's. And that is something we have changed also. It's very important that there is a provider order for the, for the Foley placement. And document the necessity daily, both nursing and providers. And remove the Foley when it's not needed. And do not order urine testing unless clinically indicated. There are only two diagnoses, pregnancy and prior to GU surgery, urological surgery, where a direct urine culture is needed. In no other instance, we need a direct urine culture. And change the Foley if it's in place for more than five days. We want to do it sooner, but when we met with the CARTI team, this was the time period they agreed on so that we're not frequently changing them. But the STICQ is piloting with a three-day uh, prior to collection of the specimen and always order the test as a UA with reflex culture. That's all I have. Any questions for the panel? And thank you so much for attending. Thank you, Dr. Manapali and team. Any questions? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.